On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the Beto presidential buzz, civil asset forfeiture in Texas, and politicians whining and dining in Texas universities' football suites. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. Catholic Charities of Fort Worth, which is seeking a dynamic and courageous president and CEO to carry forward the agency's vision of ending poverty. Visit catholiccharitiesfortworth.org. And Houston First, art, tourism, entertainment, conventions, hospitality. Houston First. Learn more at houstonfirst.com. Do I have to talk you in Do we have to make sense of it? Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, December 12th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. It's been a while. It has been a while. We missed you. weirded out by this whole new setup, honestly. It's a nice new setup. A higher education reporter, Shannon Najmabadi. Thanks for having me. We're happy to ha- happier to have you than I am to have Evan back here. <laughs> you thanked her? Uh-huh. Yes. Am Investi- I supposed to thank her? <laughs> she's, she's far more polite than you are. Uh, and investigative reporter Edgar Walters. Hey there. Hi. Uh, as always, we're taking your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Uh, all right, Evan, let's talk quickly about the news from the overnight, the Senate special election to replace Sylvia Garcia of Houston, right. who's headed to Congress. What did we know? It was a real nail biter. Well, it was a real nail biter and it wasn't a real nail biter. There were four candidates in the race. There were two principal Democrats, both state representatives from Houston, Carol Alvarado, who had sought this seat previously when Sylvia Garcia won it following the death of Mario Gallegos in a special election. The person who did not win it but who competed with Sylvia Garcia was the very same Carol Alvarado. And Ana Hernandez, uh, who has really been running for this seat, as has Alvarado, for about as long as we knew that Garcia would be departing. Garcia is succeeding Gene Green in Congress. That is a seat that absolutely no Republican can win uh, uh, outside of a cataclysm or uh, bizarre circumstances, it's a Democratic seat. So all along the discussion was not whether the seat would open once Sylvia Garcia became a Democratic nominee, but when, timing being everything, if the district is going to be represented in the next legislative session, they needed to do this pretty quickly. And so once Garcia won on election day, she announced almost immediately that she would step away. The governor sped up the process to have a special election, did it on an emergency timetable or a pretty quick timetable in any case. And Alvarado was always thought to be the front runner. Now, the Hernandez folks and Hernandez herself may not like that characterization, but I think out here in the world, everyone assumed that this was Carol Alvarado's race to lose. They and can she email did, you at esmith at texastribune.org. And she did, or, you know, my, my Tumblr, badpredictions.tumblr.org. <laughs> right. um, but, she didn't, uh, but she didn't lose it. And unlike the race in San Antonio, where you had two Democrats and a, a, a relatively not well-known Republican running in the first round, and the goal was to get the Republican into the runoff, and in a low-turnout runoff, maybe the Republican would sneak in, which happened. That's how we have Senator Pete Flores. Uh, That did not happen in this instance. Martha Fierro, the Republican, uh, finished in third. She did get 23 or 24 percent, which is not nothing, but Ana Hernandez finished in second with just a little bit more than Fierro, and Alvarado got over the line with a little bit more than 50 percent. So 50.4, I think, was the final right. number there. So it's not a terribly surprising outcome. Alvarado joins the Senate that will be 19 uh, uh, Republicans and uh, 12 Democrats. You need 19 to bring up a bill on the floor. If Democrats hold their own, then Republicans need every single Republican to agree on every single issue to get a bill to the floor. But of course, it never works as cleanly as that. 
and uh, we'll now have a special election to replace Carol Alvarado in the House. Just jumping from special election to special election right. with just 50.4 percent of the vote. So she just narrowly avoided a runoff. Is there any chance that anybody else is going to try to challenge that 50.4 percent to, you know, get a recount? And oh, I mean, you know, no. Mm-hmm. Ana Hernandez actually conceded. Uh, conceded although yeah. as last I saw when I was flying back in last night to Austin, I saw that Patrick Svitek, who was following the race, uh, tweeted that the Republican, at least at some point last night, had not conceded. Mm-hmm. N- no, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, there, may, there could be a challenge, of course, but she, she won it. Yep. I, you know, this is it. And in fact, no no less an authority on um, such matters than Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, tweeted out its congratulations to Carol, Carol Alvarado last night. As far as he's concerned, she's the winner of the race and she'll be seated in the Senate. That seems pretty authoritative. Yeah. I, have, I have a question about this. If you're a Democrat, why would you want to leave the House and join the Senate this year? It seems like you would have just less power and less influence. You know, the the Senate is one of 31 as opposed to one of 150. You know, you can do things in the Senate um, that you can't do in the House. And uh, it's a leap pad rather than a lily pad. Maybe you have aspirations, as Sylvia Garcia did, to be in Congress one day. And maybe Carol Alvarado takes the baton from Sylvia Garcia or somebody else, for that matter, at some point in the future. Um, it's hard to break out of the pack as 150 members of the House you know, do their do their work over the course of a session, but one of 31 can have much more of an individual impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would, I have to ask Carol Alvarado why she'd want to do it. I would want to be in elective office of any kind, dog catcher, Texas well, Senate. And I the mean, journalists like fight over who has to cover the Senate versus who gets to cover the House. I mean, it does certainly, Edgar knows, have a reputation of being a much more uh, vibrant chamber. It's more fun to be on the outside pissing in than the inside pissing out, as the old elegant saying that my grandmother loved so much goes. I was just thinking like Democrats have been kind of celebrating, House Democrats have been celebrating, you know, pretty openly since the election. They have close, you know, it's the closest margin to. What, well, know, they've they've the narrowed 76. the they've narrowed the partisan split since Joe Strauss's first session as Speaker. Eighty three sixty seven means that if you find ten wayward Republicans on any issue and the Democrats hold their votes, again more likely in theory than in reality. Whereas in the Senate, after right. you know, Frank, I mean, not t- winning back Uresti's seat, it seems like Democrats yeah. are in essentially the exact same position under Dan Patrick as they were last session. You know, Edgar, I have this theory that the Democrats in the House, and for that matter, the Republicans in the House, who staved off a different outcome to the speaker's race and are basically in a kumbaya, massive kumbaya moment right now. Maybe this pop culture reference will work better on you kids because it doesn't work better out in the world when I say it to other people. They think they're in the good place and they may actually be in the bad place. Does that make any sense to you? Do you ever you watch that show? Uh, my mom does. I've heard about it. Oh, my mom does. <laughs> good one. And we can get your mom on the phone. Um, they may think that this is a good outcome for them, and the reality is that it may not be as good an outcome as they think. You know, any time you drive a new car off the lot, the value of that new car drops immediately. And I suspect that once the session begins, all this kumbaya stuff fades, dissipates, and they get to the real work. Well, in fact, what happened this week, Emily? We thought that public education was a slam dunk this time, school finance. Everyone's going to agree on this. This is great. We have this school finance commission. We're going to come together. Kumbaya moment. Well, what happened yesterday? House Democrat or House members, not just Democrats, House members refused to sign on to the final report of the school finance commission, as our Elias Waby reported, because there was no number that they identified as the amount needed to be invested in public ed. Goodbye, kumbaya. I edited that story. Is that why you were calling on me? Was I calling on you? <laughs> no, I was just, I was noting... 
It was good, good noting. Good. Moderator to moderate <laughs> yes. or E to er. All right, well, speaking of driving cars off the lot, uh, Edgar, I want to talk about a big story on civil asset forfeiture in Texas that you and your colleague, Jolie McCullough, thankfully about to be back to work. Also our colleague, by the way. Well, yes, Not I'm, I'm asking a question to Edgar. Uh, published this week, As I want to... Thank you. Yeah. Thank, I appreciate this clarification. Uh, I want to start, first of all, by asking you what the definition of civil asset forfeiture is. This has been a hot topic for several years now, but what does that exactly mean? Civil asset forfeiture is um, this funny process by which police and prosecutors essentially can sue a piece of property. So, um, you know, if police arrest somebody that they say is, you know, dealing drugs. Say Evan Smith, for example. Evan Smith is pulled over. Yeah, because I appear to be a big drug addict. Somebody <laughs> s smells pot coming out of Evan's car and they Not pull him likely. Over. Um, my kid's home? Just roll with us here. Okay. <laughs> um, if police just, you know, maybe find a wad of cash that is in, you know, the passenger seat of Evan's car and they think... Also not likely. They think that this is a, you know, cash that... Evan received from dealing drugs. The state can file a lawsuit against that cash, you know, state of Texas versus like the wad of eight hundred dollars or right. whatever, um, and basically keep it. And you know, um, regardless of whether Evan is convicted of the crime, regardless of whether Evan is convicted of the so crime, so they sue the the property as opposed to sue the individual. Exactly, right. bizarre. Yeah. And um, it's a really controversial practice. Um, there, you have people on the left and on the right. You know, you get your sort of property rights-minded libertarians, and your, you know, Connie Burton. Co yeah, Connie Burton was like a su like super champion on this issue. Who basically say like, this is just a gross violation of civil liberties. You like it is against everything that the U.S. stands for. You can't take somebody's property if you haven't convicted them of a crime. Um, police say. This is effectively the only tool that we have to really get at cartels, drug cartels. Um, they also historically have liked spending this money they, on things like margarita machines, other fun uses. So they can't do that anymore <laughs> legally. Um, but yeah, there, there have been a number of controversial times that the police have basically taken forfeiture funds. And, um, you know, a lot of these examples are maybe six to 10 years out, but you know, spend on things like a trip to Hawaii for, you know, a training session for, you know, police to, you know, maybe have a little bit of fun and learn about how to fight crime. Um, these days, um, cops and prosecutors say, like, we basically need to, to be able to take cash because we can't often prove that somebody's linked to a cartel, but we know that they are. And if they've just got a million dollars Sitting in, the sitting back in of the a car. compartment in this car. Yeah, like we need to be able to take it. And, you know, they say it'll pay for things like um, they can pay informants with this money. They but can... don't the civil libertarians have a point? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. sure. I mean, it's, it's not hard to find really questionable examples. Um, the primary example in your story was, you know, a woman who had loaned her car to someone else who got, what, pulled over for a, a sort of petty marijuana infraction, right? Right. So, and, and that's kind of the overarching, one of the overarching criticisms is that if you are seizing property, often who you are harming is maybe not the criminal. Even if the person, even if there's somebody that, you know, most people can agree is like the bad guy in a situation. They're dealing drugs, they're, they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. Um, if you seize, if police seize the car that they drove to the drug deal, well, often, you know, that person has a wife, 
you know, who needs the car, it's their only car. These tend to be low-income families, a lot of people who are who 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 have to deal with the um, ramifications of forfeiture. Yeah, in our case, we we found basically a case of a young guy with a pregnant girlfriend, and he was, you know, s suspected of dealing drugs. Police found some drugs on him. Um, but it was his mom who, you know, just this poor woman in Houston who could barely afford to, like, pay for the new tires on her truck. She had loaned the truck to her son because she was very worried about the, the girlfriend's pregnancy. And so, yeah, she wrote this really, like, tearful letter to prosecutors saying, like, please let me have this back. And when you speak to defense attorneys, they say, like, that's often their, one of their concerns with forfeiture is there's this quote, like, innocent third party who's often just as affected by the seizure as maybe the quote-unquote bad guy. So if you have what seems like pretty widespread agreement on both I, I the left... I love the fact that, by the way, this is something that, uh, on which John Oliver and Connie Burton agree. I was going to say. Possibly yeah. the only thing ever. Terry <laughs> Canales and Matt Schaefer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's... So if you have such, if you have these, like, strange bedfellows on the far right and on the far left on this issue, why is this still a thing? Well, a couple reasons. Um... For a lot of politicians, you don't want to go against the wishes of, you don't want to make an enemy of your district attorney or your police chief. Um, obviously, we see daily from Republican, you know, statewide politicians, like this idea of like the importance of backing the blue, you know, blue lives matter, et cetera. Uh, it, was, it wasn't, what, was it 2015 or 2017 when Abbott's prior, one of his priority items was to buy bulletproof vests mm -hmm. for police, you know, it's like, you don't. You don't want to cross them. You don't basically. want to cross them, and and police well, and prosecutors say you don't want to seem anti-law enforcement. Right. 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 And and you know, cops and DAs will tell you if you are trying to change forfeiture laws, you are standing in the way of law enforcement. That's you know been their position. They mm -hmm. say this is a tool we need. Um, you know, when we speak to people who want to change the current laws, they say basically we don't see people taking these hard votes without some inclination from leadership, whether that's Greg Abbott or Dan Patrick, that they're on board with this. And um, I mean, neither one of their offices responded to our questions for our story. They haven't come out and really, you know, this hasn't been the issue where they want to hang their hat on. Right. All right, well, you should read the story. It's terrific. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, Educate Texas, which stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. And Chad Cantella, Lobbying and Business Consulting, lobbyists who work for Texas-sized victories. If your legislative needs matter, visit teamcantella.com. Um, Shannon, you had a great story this week looking at the luxury suites uh, at university football stadiums in Texas and the kinds of politicians who are frequent visitors there. Tell me what you learned through your reporting. Um, I don't know if this is a story that would really be a huge surprise to people that work within, say, like a mile radius of the Capitol, but the, uh, the high-level point is that chancellors and presidents, many of them have these stadium suites where they can host donors, lawmakers, uh, faculty members, whomever they want, really during football games. And the dynamic can be kind of similar to say like a corporation wooing a client. So it's like a chance for university leaders to get to know these key partners in more of an informal and lively setting. Um, and so who are the big political players in your story who you identified, people who are frequent attendees in these venues? You know, it's a huge range. Um, just to go back to like the genesis of the story, um, the way it got onto my radar is that a couple months back, there was one guest list posted online. It was like a 2016 A&M game. 
and Michael Quinn Sullivan was invited, uh, Dennis Bonin was invited. It was just you know, like a huge kind of variety of lawmakers that were on this list. And this piqued my interest. I submitted an open records request, and we got back all of these different lists for chancellors and presidents. Um, some names on the list aren't that surprising. Uh, it's a lot of like local area politicians, so say people that represent the district where the university is located would be invited, city council members would be invited, the mayor would be invited. Um, Ross Ramsey, when I showed him these lists originally, was like, you know, if you're the mayor and you're not invited, like you're doing something wrong. <laughs> um, some another caveat is that the lists aren't, you know, perfect. So when I reached out to lawmakers to say, like, oh, you know, did you attend this game? Some of them were like, you know, I was invited, but I didn't attend. So these are invitees, not always attendees. Um, in terms of statewide leaders, Abbott went to several games. Um, I confirmed with his spokesperson that he went to, you know, UH game, an A&M game, um, UT Austin game, Baylor, Texas Tech. Um, Glenn Hager seems to be going to some A&M games, Paxton. Uh, Joe Strauss was invited to at least a couple games. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick um, doesn't appear to have been invited. It's just part of the political process, right? This is an opportunity for these guys who have business before the legislature to spend social time with the people who are going to ultimately decide their fates on a whole bunch of issues. Right? Yeah, someone has said the phrase, like, you know, it's social grease to me. Um, lawmakers, when I reached out to them, many of them said, you know, like, I'm an alumni. I just want to go watch the game. Uh, you know, no wheeling and dealing kind of a thing. Um, right. Evan, you've been obviously one of the we disclosed in the story, which is not a big disclosure, but that Evan has been a guest in one of these suites. I, I, and always I confess, pay, I like football. He always pays his own way. But so, but what do you witness when well, you're in there? Do you well, see wheeling and dealing? Or is I, it I typically go to about one, one game a year yeah. and sit in a suite. It's often the, well, it's been almost exclusively the University of Texas because it's Austin. I don't like to travel out of town if I can <laughs> avoid it. Um, and it's fun to go and I sit down in front and watch a football game and don't actually try to talk to people as much as possible because <laughs> I just... That's Evan's goal in life. I want to watch <laughs> the game, honestly. Um, but, you know, the, it, there are regents and there are elected officials in those suites and, you know, there's an opportunity to visit with people briefly or not briefly if you choose to, which I don't choose to. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it's really not surprising, to Shannon's point, it's not surprising that this would exist and it's been ever thus and it'll be ever thus that mm -hmm. these guys have this hot commodity football and the opportunity to be in a you know a, a suite with shrimp and <laughs> beer so i wanted to ask about that because there was a line that i think right in shannon's story about like um it can be hard to disclose like the market rate of of the, well of the, the value ethics of, of the it ticket. are kind of interesting right um i mean it's it's legal. It's not sure, sure, sure. But just in terms of like, what is the price of this ticket and what is the price of the experience? Like, like Evan, how good figure, of food are we to, talking about here? Like, I, I don't need. Like so I'm not. Food. You know, I, I don't need. How, how much does it cost? <laughs> if you're reimbursing, how much does it cost? It really depends. I mean, Evan has reimbursed. I've reimbursed. I, I, reimburse. I think it's like it's like a hundred or hundred and fifty bucks a seat. It kind of depends program. on the university. It seems like there's some different ways. Like some universities will say like our GR people can give out comp tickets, which would be that does have you know market value because people mm -hmm. can go attend the game and sit in a seat. And then you know once you're in the stadium, you could be invited up right. to the chancellor's suite to say hello. And that's like you know you paid for that. Right. I mentioned to you that I was at the USC game earlier this year when the University of Texas played USC, and I was mm -hmm. sitting with friends uh, in the stands. And during halftime, we went up to, we had suite passes and went up to the eighth and the ninth floor of the stadium to visit various people, to see various people. And it was very pleasant, but, you know, mm -hmm. saw the governor and saw Lake Commissioner Bush up there and saw a ton of other electeds. That's sort of the way it goes. And 
look, if you're in that, again, as I said, if you're in that position, you have a suite, whether you're elected, uh, whether you're, pardon me, the chancellor and the president, or whether you're just a wealthy individual, mm -hmm. those suites are populated with movers and shakers, influentials, and if you if you go in for that sort of thing, then it's a good place to be during the game. My purpose in going is always because it's good from a work standpoint to go and see these people in an off off uh, off the grid setting and sometimes pick up intelligence that ultimately produces journalism from mm -hmm. the conversations. But mostly, it's just about about the football game. And then if UT's losing by halftime, we we ghost. Mm -hmm. I mean, but that's, I guess, to Edgar's question, which is that there's a value to that, and, like, how do you quantify that? Right. And I don't think that universities are necessarily leaping to try to do that. Right. Um, but, you know, they do. So State Senator Kel Seliger does, you know, ask for an invoice. Chair for, of the Senate Higher Education Committee. Yeah, who does say that he requests an invoice because he's active legislatively in that arena, and so he doesn't want to be seen as, you know, taking anything for free. So they obviously quantify his experience for him so that he can pay it back. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Shannon. Um, Evan, I want to talk in our last uh, five or so minutes here about um, Beto O'Rourke and the uh, sort of breathlessness that uh, has uh, sort of flurried around this latest round of reporting that he is or may be considering a 2020 bid. Uh, talk about what the latest is. There have been several headlines this week to that. Yeah, effect. it's not entirely clear to me that he is as interested in running as others are interested in him running or others are interested in talking about the possibility of him running. There are polls that have had him purely based on name ID and the, um, the, the uh, byproducts of his successful, as far as it goes, okay. successful. Successful, well, successful, successful, but, unsuccessful Senate. But bid. let me finish the sentence. It's been a successful uh, campaign to put his version of politics front and center, because obviously he didn't win the Senate race. And as you know, we talked on this tripcast all year long about the likelihood, if not the damn certainty, that he was not going to win. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he got it as close as he did and the fact that he built a brand that transcended this campaign and this state, he's been successful in that respect, whether that was the intent or that was simply what happened. People love to talk about the differentiation of Beto versus other people. You know, you've got a democratic field that's coming together with 20, 30, 40 people. In fact, this morning, Julian Castro, the former mayor of San Antonio and the former HUD secretary, signed papers to form an exploratory committee and is apparently going to announce formally for president on January 12th in San Antonio. I mean, we're talking about the guy who's not said whether he's running. We should talk about the guy who is right. actually running. Although, do you think he's been spurred into action? I mean, do you think he's... Well, he might have changed his timetable because there's been, you know, Beto-mentum and he's exactly. thinking that, we well, know, we need Castro-mentum. This mm -hmm. is ridiculous. Um, but, but back to the congressman, the fact is that um, no one knows whether he will run. There's been a lot of discussion about him running. There are a lot of people who seem to think he should run or they'd like him to run. And there are people who think he could be successful in a way that Obama was successful. Ross Ramsey has a column today that talks about the need these days, uh, uh, whatever else you need to run for president, you don't seem to need experience based on the last two people who've occupied the job. And so the fact that O'Rourke's experience is relatively thin compared to some people who've run for president lately is not the disqualifier it might have been a generation ago. We're going to know when we know. And to get back to the point I made earlier about when you drive a new car off a lot, that the value of it drops. It's great for Beto to be talked about. It's great for him to be in the I'm thinking about it stage. The right. minute the that he actually, he actually decides announces. to run, they begin shooting at him. Right. And the fact is some people have been shooting at him already. Rahm Emanuel a couple weeks ago on Morning Joe famously said, why are we elevating a loser? The guy lost. You don't normally elevate a loser. 
And I think there was, of course, he himself had supported Hillary Clinton for president after she had lost. So uh, the whole thing is ridiculous. But anyway, um, there are people who are already taking shots at him because one of the things we've seen from the reporting on this race to date is that a lot of operatives and donors in some of the early states are frozen until they find out what Beto's planning to do. Right. So um, would he be a good candidate for president? I don't know. Would he be successful? I don't know. Should he consider running? Well, why the hell not? Everybody else is considering running. We may be the only four people not seeking the Democratic nomination <laughs> in the country by the time this is over. So, yeah, speak, speak for I think yourself. Edgar, yeah. I think Edgar, <laughs> yep. exactly, will take this country to new heights, <laughs> says Edgar. That's his campaign slogan. Who has uh, O'Rourke been meeting with? I mean, it's been, there's been some Well, he had a meeting with, with President Obama, but he's right. not the only one who's had meetings with President Obama. Some people right. have met with President Obama and decided not to run. Deval Patrick is an example mm-hmm. of somebody who last week announced he was not running. He had met with President Obama. I wonder what kind of advice he's getting from like President I Obama. I believe I read this morning that Andrew Gillum, who also ran unsuccessfully this time for governor of Florida, has also, also met with President Obama. Right. I mean, I think having conversations, uh, uh, met cons- with President Obama or met with Beto O'Rourke? My understanding is that Andrew Gillum met with, if I read oh. something correctly this morning where there's discussion of Andrew Gillum potentially as a candidate for 2020, that he may have met with President Obama well, to discuss his future. The story I read also was that he, he Gillum, met with Beto O'Rourke, as did Al Sharpton. Well, you, well, so the interesting thing, the Al Sharpton thing is so, you know, the, the, the headline Just I saw on the Obama-Al Sharpton thing was uh, uh, O'Rourke meets with Obama advisor Al Sharpton. And I was like, <laughs> what kind of a headline is <laughs> right. this? Al Sharpton is much more than an Obama advisor. And oh, by the way, it's things that a lot of people don't like that he is. That, you know, I mean, I was, I was so weird that, that uh, anyway, um, there are these three people who ran and generated a lot of attention and interest in the last cycle, and that was Beto O'Rourke, Stacey Abrams, and Andrew Gillum. And really up until today, all we've heard about is Beto should run, but not Gillum and Abrams. As I said, now there's talk about Gillum running. Um, it's kind of weird to me that there wasn't the same talk about Gillum and Abrams since they both actually came closer to winning than O'Rourke did. Right. Right? Um, We'll see what happens. It's, you know, what I like about it is because it's all about us, Emily. I, I know. Is you that from just, a journalism standpoint. You just want the drama. You know, all the drama. When we started in 09, very quickly we had Rick Perry, and then Rick Perry gave way to Wendy Davis, and then Wendy Davis gave way to Ted Cruz, and then Ted Cruz gave way to Beto. Journalism replenishes. And so I just wanted to continue to replenish. It's all about us. Well, speaking of Ted Cruz, I just want to ask you about uh, news. No, the beard is okay. It's not, (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm sort of lukewarm on the beard. Is that what you're going to ask? I'm definitely going to not ask you about Ted Cruz's beard. I am going to ask you about him formally endorsing John Cornyn in Cornyn's Senate re-election bid. Was that surprising or notable? Well, here's why it was surprising. So you may remember that in the last race when Cornyn ran, he got Steve Stockman as an opponent. Steve Stockman's entire campaign was like an Andy Kaufman prank, right? <laughs> so at the last minute, like at 11.59 and 59 seconds on the last filing day, Stockman gets in this race. And, you know, Steve Stockman, who I think, is he now in jail? Is, yeah, uh, he, I think he was booked, right? Was he, wasn't he sent? Did yeah, there was another he, story. He was certainly sent. Something story this morning about one of his staffers. Right. Yeah. Um, nobody gave Steve Stockman any chance of beating Cornyn. The whole thing was absurd. So it would have been a complete layup for Cruz to endorse Cornyn in a primary against Stockman if there was really no problem between the two of them. And he wouldn't do it. In fact, at the Tribune Festival that year that the government shut down and Cruz did the opening keynote from Mike Lee's conference room, I remember sitting on stage at the opening of the, of the festival saying to Cruz, why don't you just endorse Cornyn if you don't have a problem? Like t- talking to this iPad that had Cornyn's face, right. that Cruz's face on it. Why won't you just endorse him? He wouldn't do it. Cornyn returned the favor by not endorsing Cruz in the presidential. So the fact that they've hugged it out 
and now it's all fine is a sign that they've moved past that. Remember, they appeared at the Tribune Festival a couple yep. of years ago, which I thought was like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis getting back together for one night only at the <laughs> Flamingo, which these are a variety of cultural references that definitely do not work with these guys. He has no idea who Jerry Lewis is. Um, but um, the more interesting thing to me was that then Dan Patrick turned around and endorsed Cornyn. Because there was reporting in one of the newsletters that uh, t that somebody had said that Dan Patrick was considering challenging John Cornyn for the Senate. And the Patrick people jumped up and said, no, this is completely ridiculous. Right. And then Patrick turned around and endorsed John Cornyn. So I guess everyone's loving on Cornyn and there's not going to be any question. I mean, I just wonder if Cornyn is in fact, Cornyn has said he's running, got to take him at his word. But mm -hmm. there's been a lot of chatter about the possibility of Cornyn deciding in the end not to run. Mm -hmm. At this point. Oh, go ahead, Edgar. Well, I was just wondering, you know, so we've talked about Beto before. Right. Other people yeah. have said That's maybe Beto could could run against Cornyn in 2020. And yeah. I think you you pointed out recently, right, that Ted Cruz, of all people, had, had come out. You, that, that Republicans seemed genuinely to leave the 2018 elections feeling humbled and right. maybe changing their strategy. Right. And or their tune, right. at right. least. When Jonathan, Stick yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, when Jonathan yeah. Stickland is talking about right. we need a change of tone, you know right. that we've actually arrived at a moment. And right? do, you, do you see this as an outgrowth of that? I, I, don't I, don't, I don't know, honestly. Um, I mean, what, one way to interpret it is that the Republicans understand that they had gotten too fractured and fragmented and they'd you know, maybe gotten a little bit out ahead of their skis and that they needed to kind of come back and behave more like normal people in the political universe, endorsing one another, not fighting about stuff, you know, the way that you would ideally like to see politics practiced, at least in your own party. Well, Democrats are as fractured in some respects as the Republicans are. Let's stipulate that first. We talk all about Republican civil war. The fact is it's the Democrats who seem to be gnawing at each other's ankles at the moment. The second thing is I'm not sure that any of this stuff lasts. You know, we're a ways away from that 2020 race. The, honestly, the world is changing so quickly. Politi political stuff happens at, at a every five minutes clip. The stuff gets pushed off the front page. We can't predict what's going to happen next week, let alone two years from now. So I think in some ways it's fun to talk about this stuff now, but buckle up. Existential Evan Smith. Yeah. All right, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Catholic Charities of Fort Worth, Houston First, Educate Texas, and Chad Cantella Lobbying and Business Consulting, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. Patrick Svitek appears to be impenetrable. Yes, true. Right? Guy eats Cheetos. We thought he's he alive <laughs> after eating all those Cheetos. We thought he died one time. He was just taking a nap. I remember that.